Thanks, Aaron. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing today? Good, okay. Summertime, dog days of summer, we, uh, we feeling like energized, we feeling exhausted, we feeling all of the above. I'm exhausted. <laughs> We've been gearing up for this conference this week and it has been, um, it has been sort of uh, nonstop for the past uh, several weeks now and, uh, and we're, we're starting to hit a wall and then of course, as the conference approaches this week, uh, this weekend, I suddenly uh, got sick. So I'm, uh, I'm still like kind of on the mend. Uh, don't worry, multiple negative tests, so uh, I'm safe to preach, uh, but probably need a nap this afternoon. Um, if you have a Bible, go and open it up to Matthew chapter 7. We are continuing in a series that we are going through the Sermon on the Mount. And today we find ourselves beginning the seventh chapter of Matthew, uh, one of our favorite little passages here that uh, hits very close to home for some of us, for this guy in particular. Let's read together. Verse one, judge not that you, not be, or that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We've been going through a series for the past several weeks now, or a couple months actually, uh, walking through Jesus' most famous collection of teachings found in, Math in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, which is commonly referred to as the, the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is laying out a description of what life in the kingdom of God looks like. We see that from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he arrives on the scene, he arrives with a message, uh, a, a gospel is what we call it. And the gospel is this, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that God is remaking humanity and therefore remaking all of creation uh, through this new humanity, and uh, that it's arrived. And so orient your life according to the way that God has designed it to work. Orient your life according to the kingdom of God. And so if you've missed any of the, the, the series that we've gone through so far over the last several weeks, you can check it out on our podcast. But today we are diving into a very common human issue, which is the issue of judgment. Now judgment, judgmentalism, is a slippery sort of term and issue in our day and age. In a recent survey, when people were asked, what do you think about Christianity? Nine out of 10 respondents used the word judgmental, which comes as no surprise <laughs> to some of us. There was a, a time in our nation's history where the most recognizable verse in the Bible was probably a verse like John 3.16. But anymore today, the most quoted verse by people who, who are outside of the church is probably this one, Matthew 7.1, do not judge. Jesus said, we can't judge, so let's never judge anybody for anything under any circumstances. Now, when you actually start to peel back the layers of this text, we see that Jesus is calling us to something deeper than whether, we're whether or not we're pronouncing something right or wrong. He's once again going all the way to the heart to root out a pernicious sin that keeps us from experiencing his kingdom of grace and mercy. 
So in this sermon series that we've been in, going through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, full confession, this has been the most convicting passage for me. I try to read through the Sermon on the Mount a couple of times a week, and this is the one that consistently I get hung up on. I have a long history of judgmentalism going back to my youth. In my, in my experience, passionate people, people who have a, a strong vision for how things ought to be, are prone to a sort of what we call pharisaical judgmentalism. So if you feel like this passage is, is hitting a little close to home, you're probably a church kid like me. Jesus says, do not judge. And these words are tossed around all around us all the time, but what did Jesus mean by them? The Greek word that uh, is used here for judgment is the word krino, and it can mean to analyze or evaluate, or it can mean to condemn or avenge. And the first two meanings of the word, you know, about analyzing or evaluate, we are clearly commanded to do those things uh, in the Bible. In places like 1 Corinthians 5, the church is, is called to deal with blatant sin that is within the church, called to judge it, to analyze, evaluate it, and to deal with it in the church. Or in uh, 1 John 4 verse 1, we are called to test the spirits and to evaluate people who are uh, claiming to be prophets, people who are claiming to hear from God. But the latter meaning of to condemn or avenge, this is something that is not reserved for the church. This is something that is reserved only for God. And the problem isn't that believers should never judge. It's that we tend to use the wrong kind of judgment. We assume the wrong posture, and we end up in criticism. When we judge as God calls us to, it's beneficial. It's constructive. But when we judge according to human standards, it tends to tear people down. So another way of saying this phrase that Jesus says here is to, uh, for do not judge is he's basically saying, stop criticizing people. Stop being a critic of everyone around you. Now we live in a culture of extreme criticisms. We make ourselves judge of anything and everything. For some reason, we all feel qualified to judge uh, leaders in international politics. Uh, we, we're, we feel qualified to determine whether or not a referee is good or bad. Uh, the haircut or dress of a famous celebrity, the quality of the preacher on a Sunday morning, all of us have opinions about everything. Um, and while there is a place for analyzing the world as we see it and evaluating things, when we default to a posture of criticism, we, we begin to undermine the grace of God and we replace it with demands for our own preferences. Judging is uncalled for criticism. And Jesus says that it has no place among God's people. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans writes this. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Now, 
We need to recognize the occasion for Jesus' sermon and who he is talking about. He is not talking about judging the world, judging people outside the church. This is really about judgment and critique within the family of God. Jesus' sermon is not meant to be a direct confrontation with sort of the power structures of Rome, critiquing the system that oppresses, or dealing with Greek or Roman paganism. Instead, it's a confrontation with another group, uh, the, the religious zealots and leaders of the day that were called Pharisees. Now, these guys, the Pharisees, they had created an environment of essentially condemnation and criticism and judgment um, and, and, and suspicion. It was like the, the motivation for being able to get people to live the right sort of life was not by casting a vision for sort of the good, beautiful, the just, all of the things that we hope for. It was rather about controlling people through a, a system of suspicion and critique. And the people of God were being crushed under the weight of these people's legalism. And Jesus is calling his people away from a culture of condemnation and instead calling us to become a culture that is known for grace. The problem is that when we judge someone, we are essentially announcing and enforcing our own verdicts about other people's lives. It's like we are taking people to court in our own hearts, and we are mentally bringing charges against them. And then the verdict determines their value in our eyes, and then because we are so right in all the ways that we perceive and think about others, it must mean that that's their value in the eyes of God as well. When we judge, we assume that we understand not only somebody's behavior, but also their motivation. So we always pronounce, pronounce severe judgment on other people with way too little information. Here's some ways that it works out in my life. When I go to a restaurant and I see a parent giving their kid an iPad to watch during dinner, I assume that they're terrible parents that they would rather not interact with their children. They don't want to do the work of parenting. Instead, they want to let a screen babysit their child. Those people, man, they're the worst, right? Or, <laughs> there's a joke. <laughs> to be clear, I see a person driving down the road with a much nicer car than mine, and I assume that they are wasteful with their money. They're probably up in, over their eyeballs in debt. Um, they probably don't give as much to the poor as I do. I use my money to really do godly good things, and, and I, only think, I only think that of people who have a car that's a little bit nicer than mine, but of course, you know, like, I have a nicer car than other... Anyway... As I drive past a Dutch Brothers, I silently judge every car in the drive through line. I mean, those people, man, drinking their 20-ounce cup of coffee-flavored frosting. Like, seriously, what is wrong with those people? You guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Did I offend anybody just now? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> Reset. When you... <laughs> when, <laughs> When you meet a judgmental person, they come across as arrogant. But judgment is really rooted in insecurity. 
If we're honest, we prefer to dispense judgment on others according to whatever category we feel strong in, pitting another person's weakness against our own strengths. I'm good at this. They're bad at this. I'm not going to look at any area where they might be stronger than me. I'm just going to judge the thing that I'm a little better than them at. Or even more seductively, we project our own evil motivations on other people and assume that they're guilty of the same stuff that's in our hearts. So that when we pronounce judgment on another person for something that they're guilty of, that we are also guilty of, we are deflecting our own sense of guilt and putting it on somebody else. This is every politician who rallies against misconduct or deceit or a lack of integrity and then is exposed for their illicit behavior or their inconsistency. This is the preacher who shouts against sexual immorality in the world while secretly having an affair or a pornography addiction. And this is all of us who do the same thing in a thousand different ways. It's the, it's the petty complaining about the lack of spiritual depth in your small group while the reality is that your own devotional life is non-existent. It's gossiping about the, the perceived relationship issues in somebody else while hiding the creeping dissatisfaction that you are feeling in your own marriage. When we render judgment on other people's value, we, we deem them unworthy of our compassion, our sympathy, our hospitality, and our love. And it's, we find that it's easier to demonize the other person than it is to enter into the fray with them and bear alongside them. It is more comfortable for us as human beings to look on somebody with judgment rather than setting aside our preferences, inconveniencing ourselves, taking a road of humility and serving somebody in their weakness. Like it's easy to assume that the person who is poorer than you is deserving of their bad circumstances, probably because of drugs or alcohol or dozens of other bad decisions, and therefore they are undeserving of your compassion. While every time you experience a hardship financially, it's bad luck, it's unfortunate circumstances, or somebody did you dirty and it wasn't your fault. And so when we set ourselves up as the judge, we shift the relational framework in which we are the righteous and they are the accused. And this corrupts the love and grace that God has called us to show to one another. The Bible is very clear. Uh, the Satan, Satan, the devil, he has a name, and he's called the accuser of the brothers. He calls out the failure and sin of believers before God. Jesus, on the other hand, has a name. He's called the advocate who stands before God, who defends us against accusation and pronounces grace over our lives, even though we are guilty of much sin. And so when we judge people rather than advocate and intercede for them, we are not doing the work of Jesus. We are doing the work of the enemy. Let me say that again. When we judge people rather than advocate for them, we are doing the work of Satan. And central to the gospel is the good news that in the cross of Jesus Christ, all of sin's power has been broken off of us. All of the effects of sin, all of the penalty for sin, all of that has been done away with and forgiven by the blood of Jesus. All of the accusation that stood against us has been covered by the mercy and grace of our Savior. Jesus bore it all on the cross, and he did it in love. 
He did it for you. He did it for the person sitting next to you. He did it for every car in the Dutch Bros line. (laughs) And yet, tragically, we still tend to echo the voice of the accuser rather than carrying Jesus' message of grace. This kind of criticism is sometimes called shame porn. I'm sorry, I know it's a terrible name, but it, it, it's an effective name. It'll stick. John Tyson, a pastor in New York City, defines shame porn as the pleasure we take in someone else's failures and shortcomings and the way we commoditize them for our own pleasure and entertainment. It's the commodification of people for the sake of unaccountable criticism, and it's antithetical to the grace of God. Now, last week, we talked about anxiety and worry, and we reflected that the things that we worry about often are an indication of sort of false things that we worship. And, and, a, and a similar principle is that work right here with judgment. The things that we judge in others are often indicators of things that are idolatry in our own hearts. And in the church, uh, that we, are, we are sometimes guilty of doing this towards one another or towards other brothers and sisters of Christ in, in other congregations. Here are two sort of idols that I think that we, we tend to take on within the church context uh, by which we judge other people. The first is methods, what I call methodolatry. We like to moralize our preferences. So it's not just if I have a preference, I think that my preference is good. It's that I think that my preference is right and that any preference that isn't mine is wrong. We determine faithfulness to God on a basis of how someone looks or how a church functions or how a person worships or when they spend their quiet time or how much money they give or something like that. So how about judgment in a worship service? Like where we determine that another church is dead or dying because they don't sing the songs that really juice it up for us, you know, in a church service. Or they have a different sort of liturgical style that's a little bit more contemplative and slow rather than big and loud and passionate. Or how about judging other people in the worship service? You know, like I want to go big with my hands held high. Everybody sees this, right? We're everybody's paying attention to how exuberant I am in my worship. Why isn't that person over there standing up? Why are they sitting down? Are they even singing? Are their eyes closed? Are they open? Does anybody do that? I sit in the front, so I just assume that everybody is like in rapturous worship every Sunday. But we, we can tend to just sort of silently judge people. Or another category would be around theology, theology what I call theolatry. Some theological camps will pronounce judgment on their brothers and sisters on the basis of a theological framework. And this would be just self-righteous certainty. When I was um, 20 years old, by the way, if we're talking about judgment, I've got like 500 examples I can give you from my own life. When I was 20 years old, I was obsessed with theology. I was really, in, I was reading lots of books, mostly from sort of a singular camp Uh, My father-in-law bought me uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology when I graduated from high school, and I literally read it from cover to cover in my spare time, and it became the basis for me of how I judge all other theological frameworks. At the same time, I became really enamored with, like, Reformed preachers, these superstars like John Piper and Sam Storms, R.C. Sproul, Matt Chandler, a bunch of those guys. They're wonderful. Still love them to this day. Um, But... 
after my wife and I uh, got married, we moved to Kansas City uh, for a season, and we were looking for a church. So we checked out this, uh, this hipster church that I found online, and uh, we were interested in sort of uh, finding out what they were about. So before we went to church, I did a little bit of research and discovered that they had some pretty glaring problems. They let women lead. And that, like, really freaked me out. Like, have these guys ever read the Bible? <laughs> I want to be clear here. The Bible doesn't teach that women can't lead. I want to just make that clear right now. Um, but at the time, that was my understanding. And that was all that I needed to know to, that, that these guys must not take the Bible seriously. I wrote them off before I ever set my foot in their congregation. I critiqued the biblical merit of every aspect of their service. I criticized every part of it, and we never went back after the first time I visited. Now, I was a barista at a local coffee shop at the time, and uh, the, the pastor of that church would frequently come into my coffee shop, and he would study, and he would write. And I always judged him. I was like, oh, there's that... There's that pseudo pastor over, <laughs> over there. And so one day I mustered up all of my young, arrogant Pharisaism and I initiated a discussion or a debate with this pastor, criticizing, you know, just, just calling out different things that I knew he believed. And it turns out that this guy knew a lot about the Bible. In fact, it turns out this guy knew a lot more about the Bible than I did. And he took it way more seriously than I did. And here's the thing, that in that discussion, he was super gracious and patient with me. He answered every argument that I had with kindness. And at the end of the conversation, I'll, I'll never forget this, it was a really, it was a marked moment for me. He, he told me to beware of any theological camp that in arguing its own correctness accuses other brothers and sisters, that that is a danger to the church. And he's right. Jesus says that we should not devour one another. We should be gracious and kind and merciful and assume the best in each other. And then Jesus goes on to use this word picture that was actually very real to me not long ago. He says this, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. So this paints kind of a, a, a funny picture for us. When we judge the other without first recognizing the sin that is in our own lives, we think that we're, we're pointing out the speck. You know, we're pointing out this little piece of debris in somebody else. And all the while, we have the two-by-four. It's not even a two-by-four. Like, this could have been much funnier if I had a bigger chunk of wood in, in our own eye. About this time, about a year ago, I was mowing the field out of my house, and uh, I ended up getting some debris in my eye, and I could not get it out. It was so painful. My eye was like puffy and red and just swollen up and miserable. And for 24 hours, like, I just could not get rid of it. And it felt like during that time, there must have been like a dozen people who all came up to me and said, have you tried rinsing it out? Yes, I, I have tried rinsing it out. I can't get rid of it. It's like stuck up in there. It was very annoying. Now, imagine how much more obnoxious it would be if I had this puffy, swollen eye that I'm trying to rinse out, and somebody came up to me like, 
dude, that's embarrassing. You look terrible. Have you tried rinsing it out? That's the picture of what uh, that Jesus is painting with our judgment. Jesus knows that sin distorts our vision. That judgmentalism, it's sort of like a lens, it, 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 it obscures our ability to be able to see properly. It makes others into caricatures of their sin while failing to consider the real sin that is in our own lives. And Jesus calls such people hypocrites. And we're all guilty of this from time to time. This is me. I am prone to judging others, often for the very sin that I am guilty of in my own heart. This is why great, the grace of God is so central for a follower of Jesus to lay hold of. The gospel calls us inward to repentance rather than outward to critique. At the end of his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey writes this. He says, when I am tempted to recoil in horror from sinners, from different people, I remember what it must have been like for Jesus to live on earth, perfect, sinless. Jesus had every right to be repulsed by the behavior of those around him. Yet he treated notorious sinners with mercy and not judgment. One who has been touched by grace will no longer look on those who stray as those evil people or those poor people who need our help. Nor must we search for the signs of love worthiness. Grace teaches us that God loves because of who God is, not because of who we are. When I see clearly the sin in my own life, it dispels the urge for me to cast judgment on other people. And more so, when I have experienced the ocean of grace that God lavishes on us, it compels me to be gracious towards other people. This week, I've been praying through the first couple chapters in Ephesians each morning. And the Apostle Paul writes so beautiful, beautifully about the mercy and grace of Jesus. Listen to these words. It's, it's, it's long sentences, but just let it wash over you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according with the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. Let's skip to chapter two. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one may boast. 
Isn't that extraordinary? Isn't this like core theology of the Christian life extraordinary? We are recipients of God's grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's receiving something wonderful that we can never deserve. And God has not just measured out a little portion of grace sufficient to kind of cover over the level of depravity or sin that each one of us might have. No, instead, it says that we are beneficiaries of the immeasurable riches of his grace that he lavishes on us, his sons and daughters. We are trophies of his grace. We have received a gift of salvation from God. And this is good news that is being extended to all people. You see, judgment sets itself up in opposition to the culture of mercy that Jesus is trying to usher into the world. And we are in conflict with Jesus when we judge those that Jesus is trying to save. It makes no sense that we as limited human beings who do not understand the depths of other people's souls, their circumstances, where they come from, where they are going, who God has made them to be, when we stand in judgment against other people while Jesus himself is simultaneously extending an invitation for them to experience his mercy and his grace. Two, so two ideas that I want to leave us with this morning as we, we wrap up. The first is that we have to consciously create a culture of grace and encouragement. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace. A culture immersed in the mercy of God, it brings life. And a culture of judgment and critique, it brings death. So imagine with me, church, if we could be a community that the moment people set foot in our space, they find themselves just being washed with encouragement and grace, and the kindness of God. There's nothing worse than for people in the world who are thirsty for grace and mercy, hear, uh, hearing rumors that such mercy exists among God's people, to come into the church only to experience the crushing burden of guilt that comes from judgment and criticism. James 2.13 says that mercy triumphs over judgment. That there's a battle in our lives between mercy and judgment. And for mercy to burst forth in our hearts and through us to other people, it must first defeat the critical heart. I believe that one of the main reasons why we have such a hard time being the conduit of mercy that God has called us to be is because many of us have yet to truly embrace it and experience it for ourselves. When we withhold grace for others, it may be an indicator that we have yet to fully embrace this grace in our own lives. And what we know is that the culture of your heart will become the culture of your life. And the culture of your life will become the culture of your relationships. And so whatever is in your heart will eventually flow out to others. When you see that what is flowing out of your heart is critique, judgment, gossip, sarcasm, slander. It's an indication of, the wealth of what is happening on the inside of you. Have you received such incredible affirmation to be called a son and daughter of God only to live in critique of other people? 
Or, do you, or is, is the outflow of slander and gossip and everything else an indicator that perhaps what is happening in your own heart is the negative self-talk that reminds you, you are not enough. You're a fraud. Everybody will find out what you did. Jesus wants to wash us clean. The second point I want to leave us with as we close, and, and Doug, you can come on up for, for ministry time now, we're just about done, is that we have to cultivate em- empathy for people. In Ephesians chapter four, we read, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. We don't know what people are walking in here with. We don't know what kind of baggage people are carrying in their lives. Have you ever had one of those friendships where the other person is in constant crisis and seems like they always need something from you? Like every time you hear from them, they're, they're just like desperate. They need more help. They need you to drop everything that you're doing and rush to their side. And I found that if I don't keep, I, I, I have a few of those relationships and no, none of them are in here. So don't worry, I'm not talking about anybody in this room. But um, I found that if I don't keep watch over my heart, I will begin to become angry and annoyed and bitter and callous towards those people. And when I see their name pop up on my phone, I end up doing sort of a not so subtle eye roll. And look, some of those people, we need to set healthy boundaries. I'm all for boundaries. That is wisdom. But when our hearts have become embittered or callous towards other people, rather than having empathy and tenderness, then we are the ones who are in the wrong. We are the ones who are really suffering. So when I see this message from my friend, I could be a judgmental Pharisee casting rocks of criticism, or I could take the posture of being God's instrument to restore this person to life through the pathway of mercy. You see, the good news that Christians cling to is that God's mercies are new every morning. His forgiveness is bottomless, and regardless of what you've done or the mess that you've gotten yourself into, he's with you. And Jesus calls his followers to be like him. We are called to leave the embittered, callous, judgmental heart at the foot of the cross, and instead to receive a new heart of mercy and grace toward the people that Jesus loves. Jesus opens a door to the kingdom of God and he holds it wide with the mercy of the Father. And he invites us to do the same. He calls us to put down the stones of accusation that we would hurl on others and instead to be a source of the life-giving healing balm of his grace, his forgiveness, and his mercy. This is the message that the world longs to hear. Mercy, this is the gift that God lavishes on you and me. Amen?